Hey guys, and welcome back to a solo podcast. It's been a while since I've been on my own for these. I've been joined by some fantastic guests over the last two episodes in the form of Jack Thorburn and Luke Hoffman. If you have not listened to those episodes, please do. They're fantastic, uh, especially Luke's bit on night shifts. You might want to check that out. <laughs> so yeah, guys, welcome back. And I'm going to roll through some Instagram questions. As always, I may keep this one a little shorter just because it is approaching 9pm, I have the blue light blockers on, as you'll have noticed I look very educated, perhaps even attractive, maybe, maybe, maybe not, definitely not, but um, but yeah, if you're, on the, uh, if you're on the audio, obviously just listening to my fantastic voice, so might keep this one a little bit shorter just because of the time, uh, it's been a pretty hectic day for me today, which kind of wraps me into my sort of feedback and sort of synopsis on my week so far and uh, obviously the last couple so to speak basically because I haven't had the chance to update you guys on where I'm at over the last few weeks so essentially things have been going pretty well um, training's been going a little bit I'd say a little bit up and down the last week or so um, been sort of riding the wave between maybe feeling a little bit more fatigued than I initially anticipated this early into a mesocycle, given the last time I really deloaded was uh, before Vienna, and Vienna was only just about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, so realistically I shouldn't be needing a deload at this stage, but perhaps I sort of over overshot my, uh, my ability to progress some movements in the initial phase of the mesocycle, got a bit too greedy, and perhaps accumulated a little bit too much, too much fatigue than I can handle now to progress further. And ultimately, overload is a lot indicated by or a lot influenced by our current state of fatigue. Um, if we overreach from either a systemic or an acute standpoint, we're going to be in a position where we can't apply overload anymore. So sometimes we get a little too greedy when we re-enter a training mesocycle and we, we take progressions that perhaps are there in that moment of time and then we play, we we pro, uh, we pay for the repercussions after that, and we don't realise until after we've made those progressions that fuck, oh shit, I'm actually like n near on overreached here, and this is something that, unfortunately, like as trainees that train to a high high level of intensity fairly frequently, we like this style of training. We're going to see the repercussions of that at some point, and what I'm almost thinking is that I need to be a little bit more where I need to be a little bit more patient with my pace into my mesocycles and that's not to say that I need to train like a complete worse at the start of my mesocycles I just need to be a little bit more cautious and another influencing flat factor in this is training with partners and friends and traveling you know training with Valentin training with Kevin training with other people Michelle etc you know Joe all these sessions I've had with other people like Am I going to show up at those sessions, train with these people, and you know, train with a, a few in the tank? That's just not the way these sessions are going to go, is it? So I think I need to periodize <laughs> my training partners. I need to make sure that I, you know, if I have a session where I really should be taking it easy, I should probably take it easy. But my stubborn mentality is not like that. Doesn't really function that way. So a little bit more. Uh, sensical approach needs to be applied to some of these sessions, but nevertheless, uh, things are going pretty well, 
elsewhere like works really good and sort of general sort of client progressions are f fantastic I my client uh, my sorry, my clients my laptop gave up on me today so I had to buy a new laptop today and a new MacBook Pro so I had my previous MacBook Pro for about five years and so it lasted me a long time I think for a MacBook and it just had the white screen the white screen of death as they call it and it and it wouldn't reboot Apple said that to fix it would be the motherboard, whatever the motherboard is, it's like a £600 fix, um, which could be done cheaper privately, of course, but at that point, if I'm going to spend anywhere between four and £600 on an already five-year-old laptop, I'm just like, nah, from a, a logistical perspective, let's just get a new one, and so, yeah, here is a new laptop, so I actually think um, I've now discovered how decent my mic is, because my previous speakers on this MacBook, on my previous MacBook, didn't ever display how good the audio was off this mic. So uh, it probably won't change anything for you guys, but for me, when I listen to like YouTube videos, the speakers on this MacBook Pro are far better than my last ones. Maybe I just had like bits of oats stuck in my previous MacBook. Probably did. So hope all you guys are good. Thanks very much for listening as always, and let's sort of crack into some questions. So first one is from CocoFit. And he asked how to overcome the fear of fat gain when bulking. So I've also answered this one in one context before, and that's more so for competitive athletes. So Coco, I'm not sure if you compete, and sorry if I'm butchering your name. I'm not sure if it's Coco, but I know it's Coco on Instagram. So with regards to just generic muscle gain, so perhaps you're not wanting to compete, overcoming the fear of fat gain is is again very similar to the approach for competitors however I know that I can get in condition that's the reason why I gave in the last last time I answered this question so the reason I'm gonna give now is that you need to focus on all the shit that's gonna be great it's gonna be amazing gaining some fat is gonna give you so gaining some fat for you might give you new PBs in the gym it might give you a stronger deadlift it might fill out some clothing and people might start commenting on how big you're looking because you're filling out some hoodies or some jumpers or some leggings or whatever like and all of these positive attributes that come with gaining a little bit of fat is what you need to focus on far too many people focus on all the negative crap that comes with fat gain they think i look crap i you know i i feel sluggish i can't eat the food and how do you think you're going to get through life when all you do is focus on the negatives how how the hell do you think you're going to achieve anything positive within that window of time? The fact is you're not. You know, you're simply not. And it's what I drill into my clients is that if you're in a negative mindset towards the goal of gaining and accruing tissue, like good luck gaining tissue because you're not going to enjoy any of the cool stuff that comes with being in a surplus and accruing some degree of body fat and the return for more muscle. So for you, definitely focus on the positives. Look at all the, the good things that come with, with gaining some additional body fat and try and transfer that into the gym and doing wacky shit in the gym. You know, like I posted in my Facebook, uh, my Instagram post previously in the, in, the, in the middle of the week, like extreme looks require extreme things to be done in the gym. So focus on doing those extreme things, those sets that get reshared on Instagram. Are you doing any of those sets? If you're not, work towards doing them. And then once you start doing them, like maybe like you'll have a bigger following, maybe that reshares. But I know people that have got 3,000, 4,000 followers. And I know when they do some wacky stuff in the gym, that stuff gets reshared lots of times because no one else is doing it, you know? When do you see girls RDLing like 140 plus? 
not very often. When do you see guys 20 years old doing 260 kilo deadlifts for reps? Not very often. So that's why that stuff gets reshared. Do the stuff that not many people do very often and do it well, do it consistently, and you're going to say goodbye to the fat gain and say hello to a lot of new tissue, which is going to be fun. Michael, so what's your opinion on pacing around between sets as opposed to sitting and recovering? Interesting. So this is highly individual, I would say. Like some people can get away with just, you know, sitting down and recovering fine in between sets. Perhaps that's their way that they feel like they maximize recovery in between sets. For me, I think when I'm prepping, I don't really like to sit down. I don't really feel like sitting down offers offers me much benefit because when I sit down, I feel like I'm not getting back up again at all. So I feel like standing up and staying standing up is the best option for me to avoid staying down for the rest of the session. So, and also if you look at obviously NEATS, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, we can potentially increase our step count if you're wearing a fitness tracker whilst in the gym some people don't i get my clients to wear it in the gym they just don't wear it for cardio um because they try and standardize the amount of movement that they do within the gym it's something that i want them to be doing um if it also depends on your gym size if your gym is large and you can walk around it for example one of my previous gyms underground gym so much room just a giant empty space basically you can walk around for miles i think jack if he listens to this piaz will remember me on some of my some of my sessions especially upper body days he'll remember me doing a set of like incline dumbbell press and then going for a walk all the way around the gym and coming back now i don't do that very often now but when i was in prep and i was trying to accrue steps and maybe i had a busy work day uh, i would do a set of incline dumbbell press i would walk around the entire gym and come back and do my second set that's kind of like the way I would like, like accrue steps because I wouldn't want to get behind on them, you know, and that's a, that's an element of, of like ticking your boxes. Do you need to tick your boxes by moving around more in the gym or do you want to just sit and recover? Do you, are you in a gaining phase or are you in a dieting phase? Question yourself on that one. And then you can obviously make the appropriate decision. I hope that helps, Michael, depending on the phase. So Jermaine, Jermaine, my man, Jermaine. Jermaine is prepping for the BMBF Midlands this year, so give him a follow on Instagram, Jermaine Sully. He's one of my clients, and yeah, he's going to be an, uh, a fun prep to follow. How do you go about organizing peak week, especially for first-timers? So good question here, Jermaine. So for, for first-timers, um, let's tr try and bring this back to sort of like yourself and try and give you a very specific answer. So... When we're looking at organizing a peak week for someone that's doing their first ever show, what we want to think about doing is doing the most, the least complicated peak for the most results. Now, it depends on so many factors. Their level of muscularity, the class they're entering. For Jermaine, it's going to be juniors, okay? So juniors, how do we peak a junior? Several different ways to peak a junior, but again, these juniors... A lot of these guys tend to be overthinkers. They overanalyze, they overthink, they stress. So adding in a bunch of variables like religiously tracking sodium and potassium to the exact degree is probably going to cause more havoc than any good. So for a, for a peak, for a junior, what I'd most likely do is keep it pretty damn simple. So I'd aim to have them pretty much ready coming into the show at two weeks out, and then I'd be tapering up their carbs nice and steadily. So a great example of this is my client Aiden Scanlon. I had him ready for one of his shows like a good two to three weeks before, and we just basically reversed him the whole way into the show. 
So it was a continual reverse pyramid of calories and mainly carbohydrates, keeping fats and proteins static, because the reality of changing those variables at that time is really not going to make any difference. I mean, some people think that fats can hold a look. And whilst I think that does hold some truth in the sense that fats obviously blunt digestion and perhaps they may hold a look or they may even improve some people's looks, especially if we play around with dropping carbohydrates and increasing fats, we may get a slightly drier yet fuller look. But again, this is something more complex that you'd have had to have had practice with before the show. And the reality of getting someone to be able to practice these things and get them right every damn time, or at least once, so we know that we'll just repeat the process again, is slim. The only client I've ever been able to like do a really perfect advanced peak was Andrew Rogers in 2017, yeah, 2017, early 2017, Body Power BNBF, we did a rapid backload and we nailed that because we tried it and we nailed it the first time with the trial and we did it again. So we did a deplete and we did a rapid backload. That is one day of loading and he looked immense. He looked ridiculous and it's something I really want to try with a few more of my clients. And um, once we nail it and get like things pretty much picture perfect, uh, it works super well. You know, you get that super compensation effect on that that rapid backload day. Um, of course, if they can manage digestion, they don't get any bloat or distension. It works amazingly well. I think you can create a really individual look, like a very hard yet dry look. Um, so yeah, and then obviously there's there's approaches like Dr. Scott's approach where you'll have. Uh, and obviously, like this, some of this may not be absolutely perfect because I don't know his approach off by heart, but I believe his approach is actually he'll play about with the fat loading approach. So he will do the um, baseline days where you bring fats up and carbs down or even zero carb days. After some load days, those days are like to sort of dry out and harden out that look. And then if you need a top on carbohydrates, you'll have it. But it's mainly, you know, you load and then you hold and do the, the baseline days with the no carb days, the higher fats. Um, and obviously that can work fantastically as well, provided you really know and you nail your electrolyte balance. Because playing about with carbohydrates and not understanding your electrolyte balance with potassium and sodium, you can go into some big, big shit there with regards to your look. Um, and I've done that again with clients that we haven't quite nailed their electrolyte balance james hilton last year we really fucked up his electrolyte balance at one show um and for you know partly my fault maybe partly his both ends communication issues um but both ends not just me not just him and we fucked up his look for one of the shows and we couldn't quite get it back after that and that was it you know so electrolyte balance is is pretty key so yeah, we're considering carbohydrates, we're considering getting someone ready as early as possible, making it as simple as possible for most people, especially first-timers. Um, if we can, we'll practice with refeeds or high days to see how the body responds to a higher carbohydrate, lower fat day, and then we'll just rock into the show and appreciate that the, the look is the best we can do at the time. Um, if we had, if we had, excuse me, we had an amazing prep, got ready super soon, we trialed something, amazing. You know, if we have plenty of trial runs, amazing, that would just be incredible, but the chances of that are fairly low. So, next question is from Ratish. How do you recommend a lifter to learn how to perfect form, how to perform, sorry, how to perform sets with accuracy and maximum tension? 
time. Time is like your greatest asset when it comes to these things. Now, what you've got to do is not get carried away with the idea of intensity before you've mastered accuracy and keeping tension with accuracy. So if you're a complete newbie, you need to go and see a really good trainer in your area that's going to teach you how your body moves, it's going to teach you how you can make an exercise fit you, it's going to teach you the basics of you know mechanics within exercises, um, and that's going to be absolutely fundamental for you to make some initial progress in terms of like just getting your basic patterns down, learning how to hip hinge, learning how to squat, learning how to press, um, both vertically and horizontally uh, with pulling. So I think that ugh, that's the initial phase, it's getting someone to teach you. Then it's a case of having great like proprioception and understanding like mind-muscle connection and understanding which movements are feeling good for you. And then if you find movements that are great for you, then you find movements that um, don't cause you pain and you keep doing them on a consistent basis every week and you don't rotate them. You don't start chucking them out just because you know, you've had one week of not making superb progress on them. You just stick with them and stick with them and stick with them. Then you'll find that you'll get to the point of max accuracy and maximum tension with like no real issues. I think you'll be there in no time. So time is your greatest asset but just be super consistent with your exercise selection and then maybe get someone initially to, to help you out with uh, some basic movement profiling and um, basically getting your initial things patterned. Alex, so your question is on when should we and how should we increase the cost of online coaching? So when is pretty much when you've initially got so so for example you start off your coaching prices at like say 50 pounds per month you know when you've got initially like maybe five to ten clients on that amount i would say that that's an absolutely appropriate time to start increasing prices so then you go to maybe a hundred pounds per month and then a hundred pounds a month you maybe get up to the 20 mark so once you start you know every increase you do maybe you get 10 more clients and you're up to that next threshold then you raise your prices again and every time you raise your prices, there should be something, there should be a reason why. So there should be a course you've gone to and you've learned from. There should be um, something you've paid for within the business that's going to make your service better. There should be, you know, I don't know, like exercise videos. There should be video feedback for everyone. There should be WhatsApp contact for everyone. There should be new tracking sheets. There should be new informative sheets, new informative posts, new videos for them. There should be something extra that comes with the increase in price. Because, so let's say you're a gym and you're and the gym emails you and says, okay, Alex, for this month, you're gonna be paying 10 pounds more for your membership. And you're like, what the fuck? Why the hell am I paying 10 pounds more? And then you read the rest of the email and it says, but we've invested in a Cybex hack squat, Cybex leg press, a Nautilus explode chest press, a Nautilus explode pull down. And you're like, holy shit, I'd want to pay 50 pounds more. So that's the kind of thing that you need to like, you need to entice your current existing clients if you want to raise them as well. Um, personally, I have a few clients that have remained on the baseline price that I set first time I ever coached them and that's fine. I have no issues with that because they've been a long serving client. The minute they 
leave me and they don't come back for a long period of time, they'll come back at the new price. That's the way it works. Um, so, and that's what people need to appreciate. And anyone coming on board that is new and doesn't accept the new prices, you need to just like, you know, be aware that, okay, cool. Like I've got 25 clients, I'm living perfectly fine. You know, that could be your situation. You know, now when my prices are the highest they've ever been, I'm comfortable saying that because I know the service is good. I know I'm consistently developing my education. I'm investing in courses. I'm doing these podcasts with very educated people. I'm learning myself and I'm, you know, I'm constantly reading, constantly listening to podcasts and I'm constantly upping my game. So if you're upping your game, you should have no reason or no worry, sorry, no reason to worry with upping your prices. Um, your service deserves a cost and a high one, pretty much. It always does. And I said, it's not an easy job. There's harder jobs for sure. But it's not an easy job and it's a demanding one and it takes a lot of your time and you've got to be serious with the costs that you, that you do for that. All right, so Caitlin. Uh, Caitlin, uh, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're chasing that 140 kilo, kilo RDL. That is yours very soon. So what have you learned from coaching last year that you are going to implement? So last year was a big year for me in terms of coaching. I had four of the five junior athletes in the British final uh, with the BNBF. And that was a very, very successful year for me. So lots of really good things came out of it and lots of lessons learned. So my lesson learned is that when someone comes to me and they don't have enough time, no matter what, no matter what, I am not taking them on. And what happened last year was not greed. What happened last year was not like, oh, I want more money, <laughs> like, give me more clients. It was not that at all. What it was, was I love coaching. I fucking love coaching. And I absolutely love junior bodybuilding. Like, if a junior bodybuilder contacts me and I'm like, Mmm, I can kind of maybe get you ready, but you're so on the edge. <laughs> I am like, yes, I will still take you on. And that's sometimes a really bad idea because if they're not going to be ready, you just need to be honest. Like you just need to say, no, not this year. Like next year would be good, but not this year because you haven't got enough time. And the issue is took on quite a few of those people that didn't have enough time and yeah, I ended up in a bit of a shitstorm by the finals because a lot of those guys were rushing to the stage. Um, I think that maybe what I learned is that I need to see more people this year in person. I've already learned that this year with seeing one of my clients who's looking amazing, but definitely looks different in person. Um, not to say he looks worse. Condition just looks different in person. I'm not going to mention names because it's harsh, but its condition just looks different in person. And that's something I really need to be aware of as a coach. So I've made sure that, you know, already I've got the clients that are doing earlier shows. Um, they're already coming to see me fairly frequently. And the people that invest in their, their time coming down to see me um, or, you know, me coming up to see them, whatever works, um, they're the ones that are going to get in the best shape. I guarantee you. I absolutely guarantee you because I will be the one telling them, no, like visually right here, me standing right in front of you, you're not ready. We need to pull off more. Um, that's going to be the, the, the calling card for them getting in condition. So seeing clients in person. So if you're going to coach in the future, Caitlin, 
You need to see people in person, like all the time. Really be vigilant with that. See them in person, get them in front of you, get them like in their posing suit, in their figure suit, whatever, in their board shorts, whatever they're wearing on stage, get them in it visually in fairly average lighting. And when they're ready in that lighting, they're good to go. But until they're ready in that lighting, they're not good to go. And that's it. And other than that, I learned that, you know, my passion for coaching is just uh, exponential. Um, I will do a lot for my clients and I will stay up until super late in the night if I have to, to get my work done with client work. And I can remember coming back from trips and just like, I think I came back from a, a Scotland trip for the UK DFBA. I think I was up until like 3am doing client feedbacks. And I've done that quite a few times. And I was talking to Valentin over the weekend about, you know, late night working and like, you know, what we have to do sometimes just to get the job done. And, you know, sometimes it does lead into our optimality as coaches. But at the moment, I wouldn't change that for the world because I love it. Um, you know, it's like living a, a high life for a little bit. You know, this is this is something that I enjoy. So I'm, I'm kind of happy to to sort of put aside some of my own optimality for a little bit. I'm saying yes to being a, a really busy and good coach. And I'm saying no sometimes to the optimal night of sleep. But trust me when I say nine out of 10 times, um, I am getting really good quality night's sleep. I'm going to bed at like 10, 10.30. Hence why I'm going to cut this podcast a little shorter. Um, because that's that's me. That's my progress. That's also my business and my like my respect revolves a lot around me and what I represent and how I do. So I can't put that aside totally. And that's something that, again, I learned last year is that I can't put myself fully on the back burner for something that I love as much as coaching. So, yeah, that's what I like. I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps some people. It's a really good question, by the way. I'm going to go on to the next question, which is... Alternatives for the RDL or any deadlift variation to build the hamstrings. So this is an interesting question in the sense that there is a lot of alternatives to, to build the hamstrings that aren't just within the RDL or a deadlift variation. You know, you have a seated hamstring curl. You have a lying hamstring curl, both machine-based. You have a lying dumbbell hamstring curl. You have good mornings. Like there's so many things that are going to build the hamstrings. It's about finding something that you can successfully overload. So before 2016, I hadn't really done RDLs in a program pretty heavy. I'd just done deadlifts and then lying leg curls as accessories. I'd never really got strong at an RDL, dumbbell or barbell. And I think that if I was to attribute some of the most tissue that I've ever gained on my hamstrings, it would be from the RDL, both barbell and dumbbell, and getting really strong at a good full range of motion on, on those. Um, it is a very difficult move that people tend to back out of. So if you're backing out of it, Pablo, for the reason that it's difficult, then reassess immediately. But if you're backing out of it because of like lower back injuries or some sort of niggle that you've got currently, then of course, don't do it. Like I'm not telling you to do something that will get you hurt, but I'm also telling you to, you know, remind yourself, what is the goal? Like is the goal to do the hard stuff and, and therefore build maximal tissue? Or is the goal to sort of just like, you know, go in and do the relatively easy stuff and come away with the outcome of, you know, 
good level of tissue accrual, but maybe not the best. Um, so for you, if you cannot do the RDL, uh, my preference would be high repetition, seated or lying hamstring curls. Uh, my also preference would be seated just because I love the way that it locks the hips in place. I find a lot of people have the issues with lying hamstring curls and the hips just leaving the pad all the time. Um, therefore, we're just using more of our lower back, our erectors, um, to dominate the movement. And then people take over with their glutes and end up just hip extending the pad, which is like basically so their hips rise and then the hip extend the pad to get get it through. And that's no, that's no good. Like, so just pick a movement that's going to, to suit you and you can get on with well and rinse that movement for all it's worth. And then if you can do the RDL and for no injury reason, then do it. Definitely do it. So, okay, Joshua, you ask about setting up online clients and how do we, how do, we do that process? So I'm just going to make a note of that question. So in terms of setting up online clients... I have the initial process of the application. So the application is fairly in depth. It's a PDF document. They fill that in in as much detail as possible. Some people go into crazy different, like crazy detail. Like I've had 15 page applications before, and that's great. You know, that's so much information, and they've attached like previous coaching sheets and previous training programs, previous nutrition. Amazing. So much information. So I've gathered the initial information. From that point, we either do two options. So I either do an application response video. So I wrap up their application, uh, application, sorry, and I give them the next steps. So that video will be anywhere between 10 and 15 minutes. I record that video with, a, uh, with an app you call Screencast. So I'm pretty sure it's just for Mac, but you can get a bunch of different screen recording softwares online. Just search for a screen recording software. Record your screen, um, obviously show your face, say hi to the client, you know, uh, introduce yourself. They probably already know you super well, but introduce yourself, talk through, talk through how you're going to work together. Give them some like plans that you've got in your head so you know that you're giving them direction, which is great. That's what they need. That's what they've come for is direction. And then show them your coaching sheets a little bit, show them how you're going to set up their nutrition just a little bit. And then obviously at the end, discuss the price, how they're going to, how they're going to move forward from there. And that's pretty much how I work with most of my clients at the moment. And then sometimes I'll have a consultation call, um, especially with clients that, you know, want a consultation call and they want to chat with me. That's fine. You know, like for example, uh, one of my most recent clients that I set up, uh, we did the application response process and then I was like, do you want to chat? And she was like, yeah, want to chat? So we had like an hour phone call, just talked about like her past, what she was going through with regards to nutrition and training and it was great. And that gave me a lot of information on her and her background. That's awesome. And sometimes we do do that, um, but not all the time. So yeah, that's the, the sort of the step-by-step -step process in terms of taking them on board. And then in terms of the software that I use, to then sort of get going with their programming. So I use Google Sheets for everything. I think the the online hub of Google Sheets is just unbeatable in terms of the sense that you can have everything in one place. So I use both Google Sheets and Google Photos. So Google Photos allows the client's photos to be all stored in one place. It's a fantastic piece of software and I love that. I'm gonna be doing a member site video on it soon in terms of how, collect, how to collect client photos. And I then obviously have all their trackers online using Google Sheets. They have the link to their Google Sheets. They have the link to their Google Photos. 
Um, if they have a Google Photos for like any sort of other biofeedback, like sleep or HIV or something like that, they have another Google Photos album for all of the biofeedback. And then that's all sent across to them with a walkthrough video. Walkthrough video, again, screencast. Um, anywhere between like half an hour and 45 minutes for the walkthrough video, taking them through absolutely everything they need to know about coaching, the process, how we're going to get going, what's our initial startup like, how we set up initial nutrition, how we set up training, how to fill in their sheets, how to communicate with me, check in expectations, blah, blah, everything. We go through everything. It's awesome. It's so much fun. <laughs> uh, I get really excited for them. And then we do a weekly check-in. And their weekly check-in is a video their end. So they record a video. They wrap up their week using some questions that I've given them to answer, specific ones that I want some data on. And then they record that. They send it across via either WhatsApp or even some people, most people email if they do a video. Um, some people send it across on WhatsApp, which is my main communication tool for some clients. And then... Uh, I watch the video, I make some notes, I gather up the details for the week, I have an idea in my head as to where we're going to be heading, and then I give them a video response back. Their video response, again, anywhere between 5 and 15 minutes, and then they have their sort of details for the rest of the week in terms of how they're going to be moving forwards, what we're going to look for in the next week in terms of goals and changes, how they're getting on so far, obviously continually, to, continually reviewing their process, making sure that everything's going perfectly. Um, and then we just progress into the next week and it's pretty much as simple as that. So that is a very short synopsis of my client process. So I hope that's answered your question, Josh. I'm sure it has. And yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much it there. So Simon, I'm going to take your question as the last question of this podcast. So it's signs of overtraining. So this is a good question because there's going to be a lot of people that are listening to this podcast that probably have come into these these issues and perhaps haven't taken the action that they should when they're starting to get overreached. So overreaching signs and symptoms are very individual. Okay, So some people will have certain symptoms at certain points. They will know and understand them and they'll know how to pull back. Some people will take longer to see certain symptoms that other people see sooner. So for me, my first symptom of overreaching is a slight drop in sleep quality. Now, this sleep is weird because it's not the inability to sleep throughout the nights. It's the inability to get to sleep. That's my issue. And I believe that this is down to a heavy or an outweighed balance of the autonomic nervous system. So we're looking at spending more time in a sympathetic dominant state because we're we're overreached. Okay, that's where you're going to be. Um, you're probably going to be more sympathetic dominant in an overreached state. So with that being said, when we're going to bed, if we're not as much in a parasympathetic state as possible, we're going to find it hard to sleep. We're going to hard, find it hard to switch off. So that's where I'm at. My sleep is the first thing. Second to that is going to be appetite. Appetite will most likely, in an overtraining phase, despite where you're at with calories, it's going to be um, appetite goes down. 
normally, okay? So you find it hard to eat, um, even if you're dieting, food just becomes a bit of a bore. Um, if you're in an off season, it's game over. Food is horrendously hard to shovel down. You feel like you need like a JCB, JCB digger to just shovel a load of granola in your mouth because that's all you can swallow. Um, it's bad, like it's really bad. The appetite is low. Um, you obviously shouldn't get to a, a point where um, you feel horrendous, but you probably feel some significant changes in appetite. Then it comes the slight drop in performance. So performance will usually go backwards to some degree. Um, it won't necessarily go backwards in the week that you're starting to overreach. It might even go forward slightly as you're very neurologically adapted to all the movements you're doing. And you could actually get some functional overreaching done before you actually start to you know, non-functionally overreach and get into performance dropping. So I ideally want to nip it in the bud with some of the other things, sleep, appetite, um, and I'll discuss some others in a bit that are a bit later on in, in what I see. So yeah, training performance potentially comes down. Where it's seen usually amongst most people, amongst the most of my clients that I tend to give them feedback on or they give me feedback on is their warm-ups. How are your warm-ups feeling? Your warm-ups feeling like fucking slow. If your warm-ups like normal warm-ups that just fly, if they're feeling horrendously slow, there's probably a problem. And that's where we need to start to think, okay, mm, here's a problem, let's try and like rectify this before things go really, really wrong. And that's where we need to look at, you know, potentially pulling back before it's too late. Then finally, we're looking into some other aspects and that's you no know, within like your general mood and your mood for like training will probably go down, so your motivation to train will go down. And this can be actually like, really, the thing is, and you asked this, Simon, um, uh, it's, it's hard to really understand whether the fatigue that you've got is diet fatigue or training fatigue. Because when you're dieting down and you're super lean and you're tired, sometimes your training motivation does drop off. And a lot of the time, people just think, <clears throat> I need a deload. And the deload doesn't make it any better. And you're like, fuck, did I, need a did I really need a deload? So that's where when dieting, actually taking a more forced approach to deloading, so saying every six weeks I'm going to deload, is more beneficial, especially towards the end of a prep. The start phases of a prep, I'm more lenient as a coach. I tend to take the feedback from clients a little bit more uh, a little bit more as a higher higher priority than a actual strict paradigm of six weeks of training, one week deloads. So I tend to take more auto-regulated deloads with clients the start of prep and then actually more scheduled deloads towards the end of a prep. And I think that's the best way to work it because the feeling of like anxiousness, nervousness, uh, more headaches, more fatigue, all of these things like they can actually come from just being in prep, <laughs> but they can also come from being fatigued and overreached. So the balance between these things, the emotional side of overreaching is hard to balance, really hard to balance when you're in, uh, when you're in a dieting phase. Um, so that's something really important for you guys to note. So yeah, I think I've covered about 10 questions there and managed to ramble for the best part of 40 minutes. So I'm going to leave it there for tonight, guys, as I do want to prioritize my sleep, but I also want to get a podcast out. So I never will leave a week without getting a solo podcast done. So this is Solo 14 complete. And of course, if you've got any other sort of side tangent, tangents or 
questions that you want to ask me at all, please leave them in the comment section below. If you enjoyed this episode and you took something away from it, please share it on your story. Um, tag me in it as always. I really appreciate it. Um, Solo is back. <laughs> uh, we've got a guest next week, so I'll be back with a guest next week to, to talk some cool things. A uh, bit of a different guest, so you can look forward to that one. And as always, just please give the video a like on YouTube if you're if you're watching on YouTube and if you're on SoundCloud, Spotify or iTunes. Like I said, share it on your story. Get people noticing what I'm doing. And uh, I really just appreciate the support on these. It, it really does blow me away sometimes. So um, thank you guys very much for watching. Um, I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. And hopefully your training weeks are going awesome as well. And uh, yeah, of course, any questions, as always, give me a buzz on either Instagram or the comment section. Um, all right, guys, I'll chat to you in the next one. And thanks again. Speak soon. Bye.